Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the podcast that's been searching for truth about all of the most important issues that the mainstream is lying about or covering up or ignoring since 2006. I'm Kevin Barrett on the web at truthjihad.com, where you can subscribe by way of the Substack button. All right, today we're going to get into a, an issue that we don't talk about here very much, but probably should, and also get into an issue that is dear to my heart, which is literary fiction. I'm actually a literature guy. I don't know what the heck I'm doing in politics or uh, truth-seeking alternative journalism or whatever you want to call it, because I actually have four advanced degrees in literature. So I really should be studying storytelling somewhere, but instead here I am, and every now and then I get to actually uh, sink my teeth into some good storytelling that works out for the radio show. And that's what happened recently when Philip Kraske sent me his new book, A Legacy of Chains and Other Stories. Philip Kraske is a very good uh, storyteller, novelist, short story writer, who often touches on themes that would interest my audience. And A Legacy of Chains is about that issue that I, I really haven't done much with, but should, which is the fact that about half of the American POWs in Vietnam were never returned, and it became a grotesque and disgusting cover-up. So let's let's talk about that issue and about the story, Legacy of Chains. So hey, welcome, uh, Philip Kraske. How are you, Phil? Oh, really good, Kevin. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, good to have you back. Uh, yeah, I, I love your work. I think this story, A Legacy of Chains, is, is even more grippingly readable and well-crafted than the past work of yours that I've read. So you're, you're at least maintaining your level and maybe even getting better. Ah, well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. It's good, yeah, it's my, my last, my last novel, uh, that we did an interview of, uh, about two years ago, um, was called Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Love Bonsai Trees. And it's sort of a, a parallel case, uh, to 9-11. That's why it's called Eleven Nine. And, uh, it, uh, you know, sort of examined all of the nonsense and cover up that goes on around a big issue like that. And, uh, this book is sort of similar because it goes into a little bit um, the result of all the cover-up around the uh, abandoned POWs in Vietnam. And, and that's a very well-documented, uh, quote-unquote, conspiracy theory. And it's one of those that used to be written off as a so-called right-wing conspiracy theory. And that label was used to scare away all of the, the, the right-thinking leftists, as it were, or the left-thinking leftists, I guess. When I was mm -hmm. in the university... Uh, people said, oh, yeah, well, that's that's just this Rambo stuff. And and so most people didn't really look into that. You know, we all knew about JFK, as far as I could tell. Mm -hmm. But this particular issue was was demonized as being associated with right wing patriotic flag waving types. But as it as it turns out, <laughs> those right wing patriotic flag waving types are often right about things. So so, so yeah. yeah, let's talk a little bit about your story. So maybe you could summarize mm -hmm. it for the audience. OK, Um uh, well, just uh, just refer, re regarding what you just said, Kevin, Sidney Shanberg, who won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on Vietnam, 
could not get his articles about the abandoned POWs published in American media. He tried everywhere. He had a, a long article about John McCain and the POW cover-up because McCain was involved in it, and nobody would take it. And, uh, yeah, you can find it on Internet, on uns.com, for example, but uh, he couldn't get it published anywhere. Really, really, really a shame. Well, anyways, my, my book, uh, uh, A Legacy of Chains. Um, so to start with, because it's based on historical event, I have to, to do a little, uh, I, I do a little history here. Um, when the war ended, there was an exchange of prisoners and the surprise in Washington was immense when Vietnam only sent back about 600 men. And very quietly, Hanoi told Washington, that when you pay the war reparations promised in the treaty, you'll get back your men. Well, Washington didn't pay, and the cover-up started. And both sides, of course, Washington and Hanoi, said, no, 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 all the, all the men have returned. Well, my story is in, is set in the year 2010. And what happens is that uh, in their late 60s, early 70s, nine men managed to escape Vietnam, uh, POWs, managed to escape Vietnam by ship. And they get as far as they go through the Indian Ocean, they go through the, through the Suez, they're into the Mediterranean, and by now, either uh, Vietnamese or American intelligence has figured out what has gone wrong, and... Uh, the Americans are, are sending messages to a lot of ships in the area that we think there are stowaways, there are terrorists on your ship, we want to stop, we want to search your ship. And so the captain of the ship that the men are on uh, gets cold feet. And as they're going through the Straits of Gibraltar, he sets the men down in a life raft and calls the Spanish Coast Guard and says, hey, I've got, uh, I've seen some immigrants trying to cross from Morocco into Spain, which of course happens every day here in Spain. Uh, and there are some men there, you may as well come and pick them up. So the Spanish Coast Guard tows them into shore. And that's where the story starts, because Paul Clippen, who is an, uh, a diplomat at the American Embassy in Madrid, he gets called and he goes down to the south coast. And he meets these men and realizes that they are, yeah, as I tell them, they, they're, they're POWs who have escaped from Vietnam. And his first, his first, uh, idea was, okay, well, great. Congratulations. I'll just take you up the coast about 50 miles. There's an American naval base. Turn you over to them and, and you, they'll, they'll repatriate you. But the men tell him, look, Washington has always denied that we existed and they say what we would really prefer is that you from the State Department, which is why we asked the International Red Cross to call the State Department, we want you to kind of scout the terrain and see what's the best way to get us back to uh, to Washington. And of course, Clippen was uh, just a, a baby when the when the uh, war ended, doesn't really understand the, the issue, but he figures he'd better be pretty careful here. So he parks the men in a little hostel in uh, in southern uh, south of Madrid in in uh, La Mancha the, the province of La Mancha uh, where Don Quixote is from and uh, then he goes and scouts the 
terrain and learns about the uh, controversy of the uh, of the prisoners left in Vietnam. And that's basically the story: him trying to get these men back to uh, to, to to America. It turns out to be a quixotic task. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly does. That's that's the the word for it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's uh, it's quite a wonderful story. And then there's the the plot within the plot, or the story, the 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 setting story in which the the narrator, um, who the the narrator is this uh, Paul this Clippin Paul Clippin, who's the diplomat, uh, State Department guy who's who tried to help get these guys back, uh, is telling the story at a, a dinner party in Washington uh, D.C. Uh, under interesting circumstances. Did you want to talk about that part? Yeah, yeah. Um, Clippin is is the whole thing is is a dialogue with Clippin talking to people and telling what happened to him um, in 2010. And at the backdrop of the story is that there's sort of a revolution going on in America. There are terrorists that are blowing up water towers, and the Oregon State Legislature has uh, voted for independence and. A lot of people are rushing there to uh, to defend them, and uh, there's a, a slow sort of uh, revolution taking place. And so, really, the, the the whole conversation about Vietnam and Clippin's telling the story comes up because the people there at the at the uh, the dinner party, there are five of them, they start to ask the question, "Well, where did we where did we go wrong? Where did?" this enormous distrust of government start. And one guy says one thing, one guy says another. And finally, Paul Clinton says, no, it was Vietnam. That's where really this breach between government and people really started. And that's when he starts to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I were at that dinner party, I would have said, well, it was actually the event that, that got us deep into Vietnam, which was the murder of John F. Kennedy, that really uh, set the whole thing off. But, of course, that would be a different short story for you to write. Uh, but I, I thought that was quite a brilliant device to have the story told in that setting because it's unfortunately all too plausible, you know, that it, at this point yeah. <laughs> nobody believes anything the authorities say anymore. You know, a substantial fraction of Americans uh, are extremely mm -hmm. Resistant to whatever is coming out of uh, the government or or whichever authoritative institution sure. represents yeah. the government and and the the wise uh, top of the pyramid here, and and yeah. you know that's well you know I I considered I considered the, the Kennedy uh, uh, assassination as one of those things, but really that didn't start to create a lot of suspicion until some years later after. You know the uh, the assassination when really a lot of suspicions began to grow, and it only began to grow among a small part of the population. Really, um, really, well, I, what I, 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 think, think, I, I think a lot what, of people actually. I think it was it festered in the unconscious mind of almost everyone. You know, everybody who saw Jack Rubenstein blow <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald away on live television, which was half the country, uh, kind of intuitively knew something was wrong. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. The, my parents and everybody that I know, uh, adults all accepted the, the, the main, the, 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 the official narrative. That's, that's why I say it. But Vietnam was something that affected people deeply and they could see themselves that the government was giving a rosy picture that, 
you know, they were said they were making progress and they knew people coming back from Vietnam, the, you know, the soldiers the, who were their brothers, their, their husbands, etc., who were saying that this was a mess, that this was a disaster. And I think that that's why. And of course, the enormous, enormous countrywide protests against uh, the Vietnam War, I think, really drove the, the wedge between government and, and, and the people. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And the POW issue kind of uh, makes the mostly sort of left-wing anti-war protests much more universal because the, you know, the, the right-wing people who were angry at the filthy hippie uh, university student anti-war protesters during those clashes in the 60s and early 70s, then when the, those folks, uh, the flag-waving people, saw uh, that the American troops had, or the prisoners had been abandoned, uh, or at least some of them saw that, and a lot of them suspected it, it kind of made this revulsion with the government over Vietnam almost universal across the political spectrum. Yeah, sure. There was, uh, in all the reading I've, I've, I've done uh, about Vietnam, you, you find that, you find lifelong, you know, career soldiers, uh, military men, uh, shocked that the Pentagon is not doing everything that it can to get the men back. Um, and that, uh, you know, and a lot of, uh, a lot of real, real disillusionment and just, uh, just disbelief that the government was doing this. Uh, yeah, that's, that's patent throughout, uh, throughout my research on the subject. And, and, you know, that, that kind of universal disillusionment with the authorities is exactly what could lead to the kind of situation you portray in, in the frame story in the book or the framing mm-hmm. story, uh, where the you know, the country is, is falling apart. There's a secessionist yeah. movement, uh, California, Oregon, and Washington are seceding from the union and the president is calling in troops. And, uh, you know, we can almost see something like that happening, although I don't know if it would be Pacifica that secedes or whether it might be the, you know, heartland states or the, you know, the, the kind of Texas to Florida, uh, yeah. place. <laughs> yeah. Every, everybody seems to have their own particular gripe, uh, these days. <laughs> right. And, and nobody it's likes really, Washington really too much. It's really pretty sad. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and some would argue, and I think Ron Unz has argued that this total across the board distrust of government and authority in the U.S. has led to a situation where when for once the chicken littles are telling the truth that COVID is pretty bad, uh, half the country doesn't believe them, which leads to, you know, possibly yes. a million deaths. Yes, exactly. Sure, sure. People people are, you know, taking everything that they hear from the mainstream media now with a grain of salt. And that's one reason why so many people, uh, you know, refuse to get uh immunized they you know they distrust it they distrust what the government is saying and you know just think back kevin when you and i were were kids if the government if this happened and the government says well everybody has to get immunized there would have been no resistance everybody would lined up at school get their get their shots get their whatever gone to the doctor there wouldn't have been any any controversy at all but now wow it's it's a completely different uh um situation you know in uh uh, who was it? Pat Buchanan, who was uh, Nixon's speechwriter, um, had an interesting column recently talking about, you know, there is less and less that holds the country together as a people and th- that believe the same thing that, you know, have the same set of, you might say, 
myths and, and uh, narrative about their country. And that's why things are pulling apart. And, and I think uh, the fact that so many of these stories and, and these historical issues uh, that most people have been unaware of uh, have surfaced uh, thanks to the Internet. And they, you know, kind of like my radio show being a prime example where I go off, I go after pretty much all of them that I can find. And there are so many of them. And so people who hadn't heard about this, uh, with you know, the, the majority of people uh, are now starting to get exposed to these things, even if it's only through their crazy conspiracy theorist uncle. And it's, it's rather, you know, all of these, these horrible scandals that piled up over time that were happening over this long period, say since World War II or even before, if you want to go that route, uh, suddenly it feels like they're all coming at us at once because we kind of learn about them all at once. Like in my case, when I got booted out of the university for looking at 9-11, I have nothing left to do but start an internet radio show. And I hear about all of these things and I, I'm kind of, even I'm shocked. I knew about some of them before, you know, in terms, yeah. in terms of the connection between uh, sort of JFK, Vietnam and, and immunization vaccination. There's, of course, mm-hmm. that famous uh, story told by Ed Haslam in uh, Doc, Dr. Mary and the Monkey Virus or whatever he ch- retitled the book as, uh, that turns out that David Ferry, the key figure in the JFK assassination, who was killed shortly before he was supposed to testify to Jim, uh, in Jim Garrison's courtroom, was working on a uh, government project. He, well, he was using cancer viruses uh, to go after Castro, and uh, he did that in working beside... Uh, researchers at Tulane University, I believe it was, who were trying desperately to figure out a way to deal with this horrible situation that had emerged when uh, polio vaccines in the 50s were contaminated with cancer-causing monkey viruses. And estimates are that a substantial percentage of all cancers since the 1950s have been caused by those polio inoculations. And, and so we had mm. David Ferry, this, uh, ped- pedophile pre-defrocked priest, defrocked for pedophilia, uh, a CIA pilot, uh, and gun runner, drug runner, CIA guy working on the Cuba file, trying to get rid of Castro by any means necessary. He's got a whole apartment full of cancer viruses, and he's gonna use these against Castro in Cuba. Uh, you know, some of these stories, uh, you, you, it, it just, it's kind of mind blowing, but you cert, you can't blame people for not wanting to get vaccinated given the number of, of reasons we have for not trusting these people and, and their injections, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. 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 It's a very natural, uh, a very natural evolution of, of what's gone on. And it sort of shows you that especially nowadays with internet, you cannot have secrets. You cannot, you must exercise the maximum uh, transparency that you can because there's always people who are going to catch you up and look at records, look at what you said before, look at bank records, and then you've got a problem. And I think if there's one good thing about the internet today, maybe little by little, politicians are getting that, are getting that uh, idea. You cannot get away with much uh, with the internet around. Well, I, I hope uh, that becomes the, the new uh, leitmotif of a, of a new age of transparency. Um, we're going to have some serious uh, birth pangs on the way there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. getting to the background of your story, uh, how do we know for sure that this particular conspiracy theory is true? That is, how do we know that there really were prisoners of war left behind in Vietnam? 
Mm -hmm. Well, at the end of my book, I put a I put a short bibliography of uh, of uh, sources uh, that people can look at uh, if they're interested in the uh, in the issue. Um, but uh, well, let me just go through some of the most important bits of evidence that that there were men left behind. Um, one, for example, that I thought was really very compelling was that during the Vietnam War, the CIA had located a lot of the prisoner of war camps that the Vietnamese were using. But when the men, the 600 men who returned, when they were debriefed, they found that that none of them had been at about a dozen different prison camps. Okay, and so the question became, well, what happened to those guys, you see? And it very quickly became apparent to the people who were working on this that the Vietnamese had established two prison systems, one of men that they were going to return and the other of men that they weren't. The men that they weren't, by the way, generally consisted of the real hard cases who wouldn't talk and wouldn't cooperate and so on. Uh, unlike John but McCain. It, <laughs> yes, unlike John McCain. Um, but anyways, um, so you see what the, what the reason is. I mean, if uh, a, a guy comes back and talks about where he's been and who he's seen and stuff like that, and let's say he said, well, yes, I was with uh, Joe Maloney in, uh, you know, such and such a camp. What's the matter? Joe Maloney didn't come back. He was hale and healthy when I saw him. So you see, the people who came back couldn't say that I saw these other guys who didn't come, didn't come back. And uh, so the Vietnamese are very clever about that. So that's one thing. What, what else? Uh, after the witnesses described, uh, about a thousand witnesses described seeing POWs and in uh, working in the fields and things like that. Many of them were refugees from Vietnam. And so the, it was easy to discredit them, which is what the defense intelligence agency did. They said these stories were unreliable. These were people trying to curry favor. And, and to get into the United States and so on. So all of those uh, um, eyewitness reports were just dismissed. What else? Um, two defense secretaries, James Schlesinger and Melvin Laird, both testified to the Senate uh, POW committee that was investigating that they believed that men had been left behind. And indeed, documents show that President Nixon had been apprised of the situation uh, about the uh, about the the men who hadn't come back, and at the end he he said no, all the men had have come back. Uh, what else? Uh, satellite photos showed symbols and words carved in rice patties in Vietnam, and they would spell out like K, well a special type of K that the uh, that the uh, pilots had been taught to uh, to to make uh, to to signal. And these all were dismissed as vegetation and shadows by U.S. intelligence. Okay, okay, it kind of reminds us of how, of how when, when the you know, multiple radar operators are tracking these things moving at, at, at 20,000 miles an hour over our nuclear bases and suddenly all of our nuclear bases get shut down and then are, they're no longer online. And whether they say, oh, that was marsh gas. Yeah. 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 yeah right. Right. Um, what else? Uh, there was also a, 
a Harvard researcher who was in Moscow um, back in the 90s. And he found uh, a document, uh, a briefing by a Vietnamese general given to the Vietnamese Politburo. Uh, this was three months before the treaty was signed. And in the document, he talked about 1,205 American prisoners being held. Okay. And uh, they, of course, were going to be retained after the war to be sure that America paid uh, war reparations, which is itself an interesting story. I'll get into that later. But anyways, uh, U.S. intelligence said the document had been planted there for this guy to find. Hanoi said it was a fabrication. Russian archivists, however, said, no, the document is authentic. So that's where the thing uh, stand, uh, stood. And then uh, there was a Secret Service man who overheard a conversation uh, between President Reagan, Vice President Bush, that was uh, the elder Bush, and two other officials. And apparently the Vietnamese had made uh, a flat offer to Reagan. Uh, they said $4 billion for your men. End of story. And eventually they, of course, uh, Reagan was sympathetic, actually, to it. Uh, but eventually nothing happened. So there are lots of uh, lots of clues that, you know, that the men were left behind and uh, and really to read the, the story about how one by one, the Senate Select Committee headed by John Kerry just dismissed one after another. Um, you know, there was even a, a he, John Kerry, and one of the few uh, congressmen on the committee who actually wanted to do something. Uh, defined men, uh, they went to visit this, uh, this place at the Ho Chi Minh mausoleum in the basement uh, in front of it, where apparently there were a lot of indications that that's where men were being held. So they walked into the anteroom, this sort of antechamber, and the, you know, it's just sort of like the underground of, of a big building. There's pipes going here, there's, you know, fans going, and you know, things like that. And uh, so the, they say, okay, can we, can we look behind these doors? And the Vietnamese say, no, well, what about these? Can we do, go down this hall? The Vietnamese say, no. So all they did was look around this antechamber, which was, was, was nothing. And, uh, and then were escorted out. And Kerry later said that they had been allowed to, to uh, go through the entire facility and the, the congressman, uh, Smith said, no, no, that was, that was not even worth going there. And, uh, so it was a, it was a terrible cover up, Kevin. And, uh, obviously there was something to cover up. So. And interesting how these, these, you know, war heroes, uh, John Kerry, John McCain get used in the cover up. Um, yes. Yes, it was very sad. Very sad. Yeah. yeah. The myth, yeah, myth is, yeah. is the precise opposite of the reality. reality. These guys are really you yeah, know, cowards and yeah. traitors, but they're the ones being held up as the uh, heroic uh, war veteran politicians. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so Kevin, it, it might be it might be worthwhile just to just to uh, inform people how what actually happened with the controversy of the war reparations and uh, an American's refusal. Right, what because that, that sounds crazy, because uh, obviously yeah. all Americans would be willing to pay some tax dollars to bring these sure. guys home. Sure. Well, what happened was this. Um, 
1972, the negotiations had been dragging on. Kissinger needed to get an agreement in order for Nixon to fulfill his 1968 campaign promise to end the war. And so finally, he accepted several different Vietnamese key uh, demands. And one of them was war reparations. Okay, so they established a separate committee to work out exactly how much America had to pay. And this committee came to the number of 3.25 million paid in cash, plus another 1 to 1.5 billion paid depending on different conditions. Okay. Now in my story, I didn't want to go into all this, so I just put the figure of 3.75 million. But anyways, uh, so the Vietnamese agreed to this. And so President Nixon wrote a letter and spelled out all the money that America would pay and how it would be paid. And that was sent to the prime minister of, of Vietnam, Pham Van Dong. The Vietnamese accepted this. And then after the war, when America didn't pay, a few years later in 1977, the war ended in 73, by the way. In uh, 77, there was a meeting between the Vietnamese and the Americans. Some of the same people who had negotiated the treaty were there. And the Vietnamese pulled out a copy of uh, the Nixon letter and said, gentlemen, what about this? This is black on black on white here. And the American response was, we do not consider that document binding. It has no standing. And the Vietnamese had taken this as, you know, as part of the deal. And they kind of got suckered because they didn't put the numbers in the treaty. And that's the thing, you see. And of course, this this uh, letter was secret because Kissinger knew he would run into big uh, headwinds in Congress with the treaty, because, of course, Congress has to approve the treaty, um, if he put in that America had to pay money, because he knew that losing to Vietnam and on top of it having to pay $4 billion, which would be about $23 billion today, which is a good chunk of change even in Washington, um, he knew that they wouldn't approve that. So that's why it was all done on the sly, and the Vietnamese allowed themselves to get suckered. And uh, so that was uh, really... The, the sad story of the uh, of the war reparations and why uh, Washington refused and, and got away with it. And it seems kind of counterintuitive, though, given that politically framing it as we're going to pay this money to get our guys home probably would have worked perfectly well. Whereas framing it as we're you know we're paying money after losing the war wouldn't have. But still, it just, it's just seems very strange that somehow pursuing this course would be seen as the best political move. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, you see, when uh, uh, when the, the letter was sent, the, there wasn't an idea of, of hostages uh, or anything like that that was involved. And, the uh, you know, that apparently hadn't occurred to them, although it should have. The, the Vietnamese did the same thing with the French in their war. The, the French, Fr- the paid, French by paid, the way. The French, the French paid. paid and got their money, their men back. It took them a long time, but they, but they did. But anyways, um, it was when the letter came to light after the Watergate scandals, and Nixon was already out of power. Um, at that point, 
the uh, Congress passed a law immediately saying we will not pay a nickel to Vietnam. And it really was not represented to them by Kissinger that, you know, the money is going to get the rest of the men back, guys. We've got to do this. There was no sort of discussion like that. And the result was that uh, the connection between the hostages and, and the uh, and the payments, uh, the reparations, was never actually made publicly. If it had been made publicly, I think you're quite right. You could have, you know, I, I think I make this this point in my story. If you had gone to the people and said, look, our men are still there. We need $4 billion. You know, they would have taken up collections in in schools, supermarkets, churches, everywhere. And you could have raised the money in a week. But those hard-eyed men in Washington with their, you know, their buzz cuts and their thin black ties, they were not about to pay money to communists. And I think that was what it, what was at the base of it. It was sort of this pride um, that they had lost to, to, you know, to Vietnam when they, of course, are the same men who as, as youngsters had, had beaten uh, Hitler's army. And uh, it really hurt. And I think that's, a big part of their refusal to to pay. And of course, one would think that it would hurt their pride even worse to leave their guys behind. But uh, maybe these people are a little bit psychopathic. I don't know. Uh, so how about uh, Robert Garwood? Uh, this is a guy who actually did escape from Vietnam after the war, uh, a little bit like in your story, although it happened much earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Garwood's story is really very tragic. Uh he was uh, a, a marine, marine private who was captured, I think, in around uh, 66, um, 1966. And he arrived at these jungle camps and another prisoner sort of took him under his wing and told him the facts of life and said, number one, you have to be useful to the Vietnamese, otherwise they let you die. I mean, they, they were just in jungle stockades, you know, way out in the middle of nowhere. And he said, second, you've got to learn the language. And so he taught Garwood the language. And Garwood just made himself useful to the Vietnamese. And this is later brought a lot of charges of collaborationism and so on um, by other, other uh, prisoners. But anyways... Uh, finally, in 1979, he managed to slip a note to a guy from uh, Finland. And the guy from Finland went back to uh, England, where he was based. He worked for the World Bank. And he got the, the message published in the BBC and the Guardian. And then the, 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 the news was out. Here was a, a man who was still there in Vietnam. And of course, this raised problems in Washington because, okay, it's just one man. That's true. But, of course, this one man might have seen other prisoners still in Vietnam, which, of course, he had. And so when he came back, this poor guy, after having gone through 14 years uh, in Vietnamese prisons and so on, he came back and he was charged as a collaborator and a traitor. And he was court-martialed and eventually drummed out of the army with a dishonorable discharge, losing 14 years of back pay uh, in the army. And he was uh, 
just tossed out in the street and ended up working at a gas station and uh, eventually got back on his feet, uh, partly through the help of uh, Vietnamese, Vietnam uh, veterans and later campaigned, you know, for, you know, to get uh, other prisoners back. But of course, the charges against him uh, blackened his reputation. That, of course, was the, uh, the, the idea behind it. But most people who have who have looked at the uh, you know the the issue of the abandoned prisoners uh, agree that uh, what Garwood had to say about abandoned prisoners had some had some standing, and uh, so his his story, which I mentioned in in, in my novella, is uh, is really very uh, sort of bittersweet and very very sad. Yeah, and, and it, it is it sets a precedent for your story. Although in in your story, the, these guys, the story is set uh, in the near future, so uh, yeah, it, it envisions them having survived that long. Do you think it's do you think it's conceivable that there actually could still be uh, some Americans still alive in Vietnam today? I I would doubt it very much. Now by now they would be men in their late seventies, early eighties, and I think it would be, I think it would be really hard. Of, of course, you know, the, the conditions that they were in were, were pretty awful. All of the, uh, the reports of, uh, prisoners, the, in the sightings of, uh, prisoners and so on, uh, describe a pretty, pretty awful kind of, uh, fate, you know, men in, in rags and their hair all bushy and because the Vietnamese never let them cut their hair. Okay. Uh, because that would mark them out as, as prisoners, you see. So even if they tried to escape, even trying to escape and knowing Vietnamese and having some idea of the lay of the land, it would have been very difficult. Okay. They would have been reported, you know, after they'd gotten one mile away. So, you know, um, I think, uh, the possibility that, you know, now in the 2020s that any, that any is, uh, Still alive, I think that's very hard. Very, I mean, very slim chance. Didn't Sidney Schoenberg say that he met with CIA people, I think maybe in the late seventies, uh, and they said they were convinced that the Vietnamese had executed, uh, the American prisoners. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard that story too. That, that might be the case. I mean, especially if you consider that once, uh, Vietnam joined the World Trade Organization in the nineties after normal uh, relations were normalized during the Clinton administration. Um, they, of course, wanted tourists to come in and, you know, they knew that people were going to be going around their country. So I would imagine that if they didn't have them very much under wraps, that they probably uh, would have executed them. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still a, a good story and actually quite convincing. I found myself engrossed in this story uh, you know, my willing suspension of disbelief happened, uh, fully mm-hmm. <laughs> for this particular good, story, good. despite that, that slight, uh, improbability, um, with your 9-11 story, not quite as much. I really enjoyed that one too, but with that one, mm-hmm. there were some elements of it that kind of stretched my, uh, my credulity a little bit. But with this one, mm-hmm. for some reason, I was able to sort of abandon myself to the premises, even though there is that weakness of the overarching yeah, premise. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, at, at the time in 2010, those men would have been in their late sixties, early seventies, mm-hmm. which as I figured, it was probably the limit limit of, uh, you know, uh, of, uh, their, their endurance. 
and uh, even even one one of the main characters among the prisoners, the doctor, mentions that he's giving these uh, he's giving these uh, physical exams to these men year after year, um, and he he reports that there are fewer and fewer every year. So, yeah. And, and and so your your story is set in a sort of alternate 2010 where mm-hmm. the country's falling apart in a way that it sort of is now. So maybe you could sort of reflect on where you see the U.S. going uh, right now from your perch in Spain. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the the story is set in modern times, and that's when the country is going is is disintegrating, not in 2010. Okay. 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 So. Just to put that in perspective. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, I mean, I just misunderstood something you just said a minute ago, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's true, Kim. From, from here, uh, that's what you see a little bit, um, of what I, I, uh, mentioned before, uh, with Pat Buchanan. What you see is less and less basic agreement on the basic narrative of the country. Fortunately, Americans are, in, in this sense, are sort of apolitical. They don't pay a lot of attention to politics until it comes time to vote and things like that. But there are more and more people paying attention to politics, and and all of them, it seems, are just pulling at the basic, the basic mass of the country, the basic narrative, um, the basic way of life, and so. When you look at that from Spain, you know, it's, it's really a sort of shock to see. It's a shock to see that the, the country can elect a man like, like, uh, Donald Trump and who, for whatever virtues he might have in terms of his ideas, was obviously a man very much not in the mold of typical American politicians. He was a brash, New York businessman and you know he never hid what he was or made any modifications at all about his his style his his beliefs and they elected yeah America elected uh, this man really out of rejection for uh, the politics as usual represented by Obama and Hillary Clinton um and that's how dire people see uh, what is going on in America now, especially people who are having so much trouble finding work or people who are, you know, just making 14, 15 bucks an hour doing a job, which barely allows you to to make ends meet and, and much less keep a family. And, uh, you know, with especially with the enormous disparity between rich and poor and the middle class getting squeezed in the middle, more people falling into poverty or sort of different levels of poverty in America. Um, the, the figures kind of go up and down, but the most, the most reliable one, uh, is uh, 30% of Americans in different levels of poverty, which to me is, is, is really shocking. Um, which didn't exist when, when, when I lived in America until 1983. Um, and, uh, so I see this, you know, this enormous pull on what is sort of the, uh, the basic story of the country from, from many different sides and a real confrontation between left and right. And I look at the Democrats now 
who are doing everything they can to lock in their their uh, their uh, position of power in government. Um, and it's really ugly. I mean, I wouldn't have expected that of them. I, I thought that they were a little more, you know, willing to go in for, you know, dialogue between the the two parties and so on. But they're now getting just as bad as the Republicans and want to do down the other party just as as uh, just as much as the Republicans uh, did them down. And that's very shocking to me that uh, that's. That's a change in, in, in American politics that uh, has has happened and is is really, really very destructive. And, and to what extent is this uh, something you can blame the media for? You know, you've mentioned the narrative, uh, the, the kind of grand narratives that used to hold people together have fallen apart partly because the Internet has made it possible for more and more people to poke holes in more more official narratives. Yeah. And and the media, uh, one could argue, isn't doing its job. Uh, the case of the Vietnam uh, prisoners left behind is one outstanding example, but there are many dozens more. And in your novel, or in your, your story, uh, it, you have two journalists confronted with the reality of the POW issue. And one of them is a, an airheaded, blonde, uh, talking head type, who basically briefly looks into it and just says, oh, no, that couldn't be true because our leaders wouldn't do anything like that. And then the other one is a much more sophisticated sort of urbane, presumably Jewish, uh, maybe New York kind of character who's been around yeah, for a while. He's, he's, he's a, a Bronx guy from the Bronx, yeah. Bronx, mm-hmm. Right. It kind of you know, almost could be a Seymour Hirsch uh, kind of character who's seen through a lot of these things. And then his attitude is, yeah, well, of course, this and so many other terrible things are probably true, but our job in the media is to feed the public the unifying narrative. And so we, we're not, you know, we're, of course, we're not going to tell them the truth about this or anything else. So, so, and I think that's actually a pretty realistic assessment of, of the media. They're made up of essentially those are the two poles of our media, the totally naive idiots who actually believe the official BS. And then the uh, more smarter, more sophisticated ones who recognize that their job is to feed people the official BS, even though it's not true. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in, especially in the case of the, the print reporter, the, uh, the guy from the Bronx, um, I try to, especially with him, not so much with the others. She just sort of dismissed the whole thing as a conspiracy theory. But with the print reporter, I tried to give the media their due. I tried to, to present their their side of the story as, you know, fully and as, you know, decently as I could. And their point of view, I think, is this. We are one of the few elements in America that keeps the country together. And if we keep putting out all these stories about terrible things that the government is doing, we're going to have a mess very quickly. And so we can report sort of minor, minor scandals like, uh, you know, this this congressman was taking money and that congressman was touching women. Et cetera, and, and, and this governor was coming on inappropriately to women. Exactly. Exactly. They can cover that. And of course it's true. It's, it's, it's happening, but they don't want to touch the big things. For example, nobody in, in the media 
uh, gave any time to the people who were saying that the 2020 election was rigged. Now, I am sort of half and half on the story. I've seen uh, in uns.com, for example, I've seen some of the, the stories that he, he allowed uh, on his uh, on his website. And OK, I don't think that the evidence is conclusive, but it's interesting. But of course, you didn't see any of that. Uh, after the 2020 election. It was all, no, 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 the election was fair. Um, they don't talk about any of the alternative evidence of, of September 11, for example. And so their point of view is, yeah, yeah, maybe all that stuff, maybe there's something to it, but we have to keep the country together with a single solid narrative. And if it has too many loose ends, it's not going to work. And I, so I tried to give the, uh, the mainstream media with this character, I tried to give them their due and people can think of it, uh, you know, what, what they like. Yeah. Well, I, I would see that character as being, uh, a kind of a, um, halfway step to the full neocon perspective that, uh, basically uh, there are two kinds of people, evil people like us who have all the fun and all the poor, uh, credulous sheeple, and it's our job to manipulate them and lie to them, and that all uh, unifying stories, whether religious or political ones, are basically lies that evil scumbags like us feed to the masses so we can end up yeah. having a lot more fun than they have in life, and, and that's all there is. That's, that's pretty much the neocon Straussian perspective. Uh, yeah. and, and, and this guy though, he seems to think that he's doing the public a service by covering all these things up and lying about them. And of course, I, I would disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I read, uh, the, uh, um, biography or autobiography of Seymour Hirsch, uh, the, the great uh, reporter. And, um, he of course also uncovered a lot of things. He uncovered the My Lai massacre. And, and a lot of other things going on in Vietnam. The, 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 the fake Bin he, Laden assassination too. <laughs> He's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that he, he talks about in his book is how much the other reporters who covered the Pentagon resented him for doing this kind of reporting. They thought he was a traitor. And I thought, wow, there's, <laughs> that's really a big difference of, of opinion among those guys. I would think that they would be going after the story, but that's not so. They evidently think that part of their job is to, you know, present a single seamless narrative. So there it is. Yeah, it's uh, it, I guess it's great for people like me. It certainly gives us plenty of material and you, too, for your for your novels. There's an endless supply yeah. of material because of this ecosystem of of lies and, and bigger lies and still bigger lies that you, you never get to yeah. the bottom of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh uh, your your other books are novels, and this is a novella followed by a bunch of short stories. Uh, tell us why. What, what's what's behind that change? Well, um, I guess the the first place uh, when I was writing this story, of course, when I started out, I wrote it one way. I wrote it another way. For for me, writing a a, a, a story is always a very messy sort of thing. I, I then. Finally, I get the idea, the point of view, the way I want to say it, and, and then everything goes pretty well. Um, but in the first place, it's a novella. It's uh, 31,000 words. Uh, so that would be, 
like about of a normal novel that would be about a hundred pages. Okay. So just to give people an idea, people tell me it takes about two hours to read. Well, in the first place, this is a, this is a conversation told, you know, uh, you know, to, uh, at, at a dinner party, uh, uh, as you say. And so you can't have a really, really long book. Uh, this is a, a, a book I, I sort of chose the model of, uh, Joseph Conrad's great novella, Heart of Darkness, where of course it's one man telling a story to others. So it couldn't be a really long novel. You can't, it can't go on, you know, the conversation can't go on for three days. So that's one reason. The other reason is that, um, I wanted to try a, a shorter, um, a shorter format, uh, with some short stories to see if, uh, that had more attraction among, among readers. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, see what, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, the reaction was that for, for the moment, it's been really favorable. Uh, I've got some, uh, terrific blurbs. Uh, even there's one on the cover of the book, uh, from the, uh, director of the, uh, National Alliance of Families for, um, POWs and MIAs. And, uh, there have been some really good reactions to the book. I've been, I've been very, uh, very satisfied. And then what I did with the short stories, I had a bunch of short stories in my files. And I sort of took them out and, and, uh, retooled them, restructured them, you know, um, put a little bit of the, the experience now that I've, I've, I've been writing for, for 30 years and, uh, and then put them in the book and then just sort of to, to fill out and, and make a, make a, a complete, uh, a complete book out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good stuff. And I wonder if your audience is, entirely people like listeners to this show who are more or less red pilled. Many probably don't know about all of these issues uh, or is to some extent, are you, are you going to be reaching people who haven't really been exposed to the red pill world yet? And if so, how do you do that? Um, well, uh, in the first place, you have to present a very factual uh, case about, you know, what happened to the abandoned POWs in this case. Um, and uh, also, I think you have to do it with without demanding that they believe this. You simply have to present your point of view and, and let it go like that. Um, but I think, Kevin, really, you know, just as a writer who's trying to reach an audience um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not really that interested in sales per se because that the book actually pays me very little money i think i make a, a buck a buck well, you're, you're not getting rich off this and, and living in luxury and not, in not a yet, huge not castle yet, in spain oh, it's, it's going slowly there goes my it's fantasy going slowly i, I was i was but just the, gonna the i was gonna switch is, to fiction oh well <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well the real thing is to uh you know is to reach readers and to have your story read that's what it's all about uh for me, I mean, there's no money in writing fiction. You do it for love of the art. And uh, unless you get lucky, but, you like know, Dan Brown, I mean, he sells conspiracy theories to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's. Uh, but you know, it's it's a funny thing about about selling books. It's it's you can't advertise. You can't you know do anything that's in conventional advertising. It's all word of mouth. It's all people reading your book and then 
saying to somebody else, hey, I read a really good book. That's the only thing that works in, in book sales. And, uh, but you know, the few books that I do sell, well, my, my last book sold a hundred copies. I was very proud of that. Um, but you know, that's very, very nice for me. You know, it's a hundred people who read my book and, uh, that to me is very gratifying. I, I, I like that. Um, so I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping to, to break my record this time, maybe get up to 110. Who knows? That's pretty pretty sad figures compared to any mainstream book or, or much less Dan Brown. Um, but it, it's it's very gratifying uh, all the same to uh, read uh, to to write your story, put it out there, and that uh, you get a few sales and and thus a few readers, which is what it's all about for me. Well, I'll, I'll happily be part of your word of mouth chain and tell people that I read A Legacy of Chains and really like it. It's a great story. Uh, excellent use of my few, couple hours of time it took to read it. Uh, in fact, it's a, for me, it's really fun to, to read a, a well-crafted, uh, totally engaging story like this that works on a bunch of different levels, including at kind of a, a level of probing ethically and morally and spiritually. It's really good stuff. So anybody listening to this really should consider checking it out. Uh, the book is called well, The Legacy of Chains. And uh, I really appreciate your work at, at writing this stuff. And I, I hope it does start to pick up and, and rival Dan Brown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's also that uh, that short story, uh, right after uh, Legacy of Change, which leads off the, the book, uh, The Rainmaker. And, uh, it talks about, uh, a, um, the, uh, plot to the, the Bin Laden raid in Obadabad, uh, Pakistan, where all of these big heads of the intelligence agency gather around for a CIA presentation. And the CIA tells them, and this is true, they went to the president, uh, they went to Obama just a day or two before the raid and said, we are not sure he's there. And this is after six months of, you know, of, of, uh, surveillance. And the, 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 the meeting there, it goes berserk. You know, what do you mean he's not there? He's got to be there. We, we've got to kill this guy. And, and the CIA man doesn't, you know, he refuses to move. We have been looking at this place. He is not there. We don't see him. We don't hear him. End of story. And then finally, the rainmaker, who's sitting down at the other end of the table, uh, who's an old uh, Intel uh, veteran, uh, says, well, you don't have to say that he's not there. You just have to say you don't have any evidence that he's there. And they start to weave this whole story. And that's the eventually the uh, the official story of uh, of the Bin Laden raid, which I think was I think was uh, uh, just a sort of a uh, a creation of a, a lot of different people. It doesn't hang together at all. Okay, well, maybe we should do another interview on that because we came to the end of this one. So thank uh-huh, you, Philip okay. Kraski. Great, great work. Uh, uh, keep it up. Uh, frankly, I think this is. Uh, head and shoulders above most of the literature that's being published these days and because you're actually dealing with uh, reality in a way that most uh, novelists and short story writers are afraid to. That's so, true. There are, very, there are very few dissident writers in America. We need a lot more. We sure do. All right. Well, you're one of them. Uh, thanks, Phil. Uh, take care. God bless. And talk to you again soon. 
Okay, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you soon. Bye.